welcome to the SBCA podcast, Component Connection. Uh, really good to talk to you, Matt. Uh, we've been trying to do this for quite some time. Uh, one of the things I'd like you to do, because we've had several discussions in the past about this particular issue, what is your view in the context of kind of the run-up a year ago in the lumber industry and lumber prices? What's your view of the current condition of lumber market supply demand and the current condition of the marketplace overall? Well, that's, that's pretty broad. Um, I think, let's start with the last thing. The marketplace overall, I think, is, is still reeling from what happened in 2018. Um, I, I'd call it volatile and fragile at the same time. Um, the buyers of the market are so afraid they're going to miss something and they're going to get caught like they did last year. And on, they want to try to get in before something like that happens. But they also are very conscious and aware of the fragile state of the economy. You turn on the TV every day, you hear, was the job report something's recessionary or is the home building report something's recessionary? It seems like the media defaults to going to what's the possible bad news. And then when they can't find anything, they just go to the next event that's possible bad news and, and leave things alone. But the state of the housing industry, in my opinion, is still very strong simply because we're in a situation where the market's just undersupplied. We started 2018 and ended 2018 with the problem being affordability. And it, what, it wasn't the volume of homes that could be built. It was the number of people that, that could buy an affordable home. This year, the builders have addressed that issue of affordability. Lumber market's down 40% from where it was at its high, which only stayed there just a couple of months. It really was just a phenomenon that came and went. But everybody latched onto it as something that's, you know, are we going to $600 two-by-fours forever? And it's not that anybody was really afraid of that. It's just that it was a shock going from 300 to 400 to 600 in one year and not knowing if it was going to stick or not, and it didn't. So the combination of the volatility has got everybody on edge, and it's just it leaves the whole market fragile and vulnerable to being manipulated. And we've seen like um, disruptions like the rail car effect last year where the, it was um, supposed to be a rail car shortage. Turns out it was just a short-term blip of manipulation that squeezed the market out to an eight-week supply it was really about a six-week supply, four-week supply, but it was all just overblown. And the, the buyer, from the buy side, these guys just want to know what's going on and, and not get surprises. And, and we're in a market where, where the people that are doing the manipulating of the market realize the, the same situation. They realize that, that it is manipulatable, it is fragile, it is volatile, and they take advantage of that. When they get an opportunity, they're just pouncing on it. And, and it seems like this year we've seen these you know false starts where we um, have opportunities to market was going to run on its own, and then it would. Simple it happened to stop it with like the government shutdown. We couldn't get data, so all of a sudden you couldn't get housing starts data for two months, and and you couldn't make a decision about what the housing market is going to do. Then you get the housing starts that are coming out for a two-year low, and then it's at a two-year high, and it's just bouncing all over the place. We just need to settle down with data and realize that bottom line, the market is still underbought. Housing is getting affordable. Interest rates are still low. Lumber supply is adequate. Um, Labor issues are being taken care of predominantly because builders are going to component manufacturers. And I think we're going to see a surge in wall panels this year because it's just another way to keep labor issue taken care of. And, and consequently, we're going to get homes getting built faster, sold faster. And I really expect that probably April and May of this year, are going to be, we're going to be going gangbusters in the lumber market just because of pent up demand and the ability to get things cranked out faster. So let me ask a couple of questions out of that. But the first one is, you mentioned, and we had a conversation about this in the past as well, that the shipping issue last year, December, November, December, uh, was really basically made up, but it caused a run 
on lumber and that was the kind of the impetus to go into this 300 400 600 kind of uh, situation give a little bit more background why did that happen and then do you well, anticipate anything like that happening again it really wasn't a, it wasn't that it didn't happen it did happen but the reason it happened was because the CN railroad adopted this um precision railroading method that same that, that up had done see it had done it was and um, CSX was starting to do. And the, the way the whole concept behind precision railroading is retiring engineers and engines and equipment. So they literally, CN literally had, did have less equipment, but they knew they had less equipment. And the mills knew they had less equipment. The only people that didn't know it were the people on the receiving end. They knew they were coming into the winter with less equipment, didn't make anyone, anybody aware of it. They knew they were gonna have a car shortage they knew the winter was going to be disruptive like it always is. And it was just a temporary log jam when the fewer cars that couldn't get through the Catchwan area, the Edmonton up there where it typically gets 40 degrees below zero and the railroads get frozen over. It's, it's hard to get through in the winter anyway. But with reduced supply, car shortages, reduced car supply, it just bottlenecked the market. But what happened was it created a supply problem, a sensation or an illusion of a supply problem it never really materialized. People thought it was going to get bad and ended up buying eight-week cars of lumber, but they never really ran out of anything. Even with even with the disruption going on and the delay in the deliveries, people still never did run out of lumber. What they ended up doing was they ended up double buying, which at the top of the market in May of last year, it just plummeted because the buyers didn't need anything else. They'd already bought their wood. It was going to cover them through the summer. And so it started to ship. It wasn't that they had any supply problems. It just they had overbought based on the fear of getting it. And then when it started to loosen up, it just all came at him at one time and it just snowballed. So that was, that's, thank you very much for that. That was a really good recap of that particular issue. And I think that's important for everybody to understand. So it's likely not going to be an issue in the future. One would, one would think just from the standpoint that obviously the railroads have worked out. I mean, there's always supply interruptions and rail card and transportation interruptions. We're going to have a labor supply issue there probably as well. But looks like that for at least the near term. And we can talk about that further in the future if you see shipping become a problem. Next well, question I'd like go ahead. Sorry. Put that one to rest. CN bought, um, good gracious, I think it was 300 A frame cars for lumber cars. The commitment to, to hire, they brought people out of retirement to beef up their staff. So they, what they realized is they overreacted that precision railroading was an extreme way to go. And it was, it was too far on the end of um, being efficient and profitable, but it just really left you know, the grain and every, you know, not only just lumber, but every industry that was dependent on rails, you got them all in a lurch and, and they realized that it just wasn't going to work in the future. So they've gone back to more of a service menu rather than just profitability. Cool. Thank you. That's really, really valuable. The next issue that we talked about a while back, too, is one of the things that you said to me that's intriguing. I think it's going to be intriguing for the market. Uh, in terms of mortgages and budgets that the builders have, typically they pick a price, and I think you've had some conversations with builders on this, where they have a price that they're going to set in their budget for lumber. And they've got some flexibility with that price from a profitability perspective. And obviously, housing affordability, as you said earlier in our pre-conversation, uh, you know, one dollar a thousand can save builders a lot of money. So, can you go through kind of your conversations with builders on how they budget for utilization of lumber as framing and how they budget for components? Um, yeah, they um, 
the budgets are done at the end, of the, I guess, the end of the previous fiscal year, and, the, and then they start the new year with, a, with their new budgets, and those are going to be based on what their expectations of either what, what's the worst case scenario going to be? How bad can we get it for a lumber, which is going to influence the price of our components, obviously, but what's the lumber market likely to do? Last year, for example, the builders that I talked to before the run up to $600 happened, and I'm talking $600 FOB mill, which let's kind of funnel that down. You've got $600 of the mill. Um, you've got freight to get it to uh, destination Southeast is another $115. Then you've got a, a broker handling fee or a, a lumber dealer, which is you throw another 20% on there. So you're talking, you know, eight, $900 for the cost of the lumber for the, for the builder. But the guys that I talked to, they didn't like having to pay that much for lumber, but it never did kill their budget because their budget was already planning for over $1,000 a thousand for two by fours at the beginning of the year. What it just did is it aided to their profit. And the way that became evident to me is the end of the year when when um, several of the builders I talked to were, were talking about how good their December sales were and the way that they made the price affordable was just to cut the price of a $450,000, $400,000 home by $50,000. And my question was, how did you how did you cut fifty thousand dollars out of a four hundred thousand dollar home or four hundred fifty thousand dollar home, and it was just profit margin. So those guys apparently they're and I'm probably going to get in trouble by grouping everybody together, but it's my understanding that they have flexibility in their pricing, especially when the price of the product and material is significantly below what their what their budgeted price is. And the budgeted prices where they started last year, lumber was about 400 bucks a thousand. Their budgeting was like for a thousand dollars a thousand. So they got plenty of fluff in there for the market to run up on them, but it just it just eats into their profitability. It's going to hurt their stock or their whatever they have their value their year end at the end of the year based on what lumber prices did. But it's, but they they did have the ability to make housing more affordable and just cut into their profit margins. So I, that's where we are. That's where we are now. Back with the same deal with. $400 lumber, if they price it like they did last year, they've got plenty of room to make houses more affordable. So given all that, obviously, when we think about volatility and we think about the issues that we've got uh, from a volatility perspective, the, um, you know, sometimes you lose money, sometimes you make money, uh, but the builders are probably studying a budget. And we've talked a little bit about this too in the past. One of the things you want to do is you want to have, if you've got a business model, for the construction industry supply chain. You'd like to have the lumber industry know that they're gonna make money. You'd like to have the component manufacturing process make money, and you want the builders to make money so that everybody in that supply chain uh, makes decent revenue and can add professional staff and grow their businesses. One of the things that happens when you go from 400 to $600 a thousand there's folks that have fixed contracts to get really hurt in that environment. So as you think about builders and as you think about the supply chain, how would you think about improving that business model supply chain wide? Because we really want, our desire is, everybody to have a robust financial system uh, and a robust set of profitability to add professional staff is just one example. Well, the problem is the uh, seasonality of the consumption or demand side versus the production side. If you were to chart things up together, and you was, um, on one start off of the chart, the production, for example, production is the most stable between on the supply side, the uh, component manufacturer side, the builder side, 
all of the demand side, production is more stable than demand because production can run 24 7, 365 if that's what they wanted to do. But it, it, certainly two shifts because it's, it's an inside controlled environment. So they're not really affected by weather other than the possibility of having uh, uh, ebbs and flows with logging situations. But for the most part, you come to work and you walk into a sawmill, it's a controlled environment, it's either cooled or heated, or but it's, if it's not perfectly climate controlled, it's certainly workable for you know year round. So lumber, lumber supply only vacillates based on when vacation times or downtimes occur. It could be market conditions, but if, if, the, if the market was in a good, good circumstance, good condition with stability all along the, for the year, then the only time meals are going to be down is when they take a maintenance shutdown in, in the summer and a Christmas shutdowns over the holidays. They'll lose about two weeks of production a year at the most. Otherwise, they're making, they're making all they can make. The problem with price stability is going to be that buyers don't need that lumber. They don't, they don't need to buy the same amount of lumber in January as they do in uh, March for April and May. April and May is the biggest demand period of the year for, for lumber in general as nationwide because it's simply a function of how much you can do in a day. Long, days are getting longer, climates are better, they're warmer, drier. It's, it's, the, you know, most, it's like paradise for building, if you will. But then it gets into the summer and it's getting real hot, so you know, job, job site productivity goes down. So the, on the supply side, guys have to build their inventory for when uh, the, the lumber dealer contractor yards have to build their, build their inventory for when their peak demand is going to be. So it's going to be in April, May, and June. So they got to build inventories in February and March to be prepared for that. And then they have this, they got to keep, keep your inventories higher during that higher demand period. And then about June, builders start to pare back their, starting to think about their year ends and winding things up. So their, their demand for lumber is going to go down. So the, the cycle of demand for lumber goes, it spikes in from probably, let's call it January for the low, it spikes to a high in May and then falls to a low again in August. And then you get a little uh, last year in flurry of September and October to kind of beat the bad weather. So in general, the market goes, low in February, I mean, low in January, high in May, low in August, a little bump rally in September and October, and then kind of sideways into year end and it starts over again. The cycle for supply and demand is not the same as it is for production. So that's what keeps those, the volatility of the market. And honestly, Kurt, I don't see any way that you could ever get rid of that because you don't need to. I mean, the market side, playing the lumber market is, I guess not playing it, but trading the lumber market is, is the way that these guys make their money. They have to they have to gamble on having the right inventory at the right time because it's it's a feast or famine kind of year. You get five months that are good, five months that are bad, a couple of months that are kind of neutral, and it's just a cycle of you know what you can do in a day and how much you can get done in a daylight versus what you can what you cannot do in the wintertime versus the summertime. Okay, so I, I'm gonna let's say you're a purchaser of lumber, whether it's at a trust manufacturing plant or building material supply dealer um, and lumber dealer building material supply uh, company. How would you, if you take a look out for, let's go to 2020, take a look out and you're in charge of making sure that that organization that you're representing, whether it's on the component manufacturer side or the building material side, building material supply side, you're in charge of making sure that they've got a stream of cash uh, that would meet Wall Street, you know, return on assets at 25%. And 
How would you do that in a volatile lumber market? What would you do for 2020 to make certain that you had Wall Street profitability or return on assets? So profitability, let's say it's even at a, you know, seven, eight, 10% or return on assets at 25%. How would you do it? Well, you gotta, you gotta do it one day at a time, one week at a time. You can't, there's, there's no way to take care of it all, all at once and you, cause you can't buy your lumber at one price for the year. You can't get, you can't get a, anybody in their right mind is not going to do that. They're not going to give you a fixed price. So what you can do is, there's a couple of things. Look at the cyclical uh, patterns of the market. The market's going to, start to appreciate probably uh, third week of January into May and then peak. So during that period of time, you want to be building inventory and um, which is accumulating inventory, which is buying more than you're selling. So that keeps you ahead of the price increases. And then during and the falling, the falling time of the market, be reducing inventory, which is going to be buying less than you're selling. So it gives you an opportunity to, to um, reduce your average inventory costs. But even more than that on, on, we're talking about how much you can save on um, dollars per thousand. The lumber market right now changes, uh, well, SPF lumber right now changes an average of $18 per thousand per week. Everything else changes about 10 or $12 per thousand per week. So if you think about a truckload of lumber, one truckload of lumber that changes $10 per thousand a week is $200 on every truckload that you buy. Component manufacturers buy a lot of lumber is 50% of the cost of the products. They're, they're buying multiple truckloads of lumber every week. So let's say you're buying five trucks of lumber a week, every week. So you're going the markets, the volatility of the market is going to be $1,000 a week on your five truckloads. So over the course of a year, you've got market volatility of $50,000. If you're only buying five trucks a week, you've got $50,000 of market volatility that you've got to play with. So that, I look at that as an opportunity. You can, if you can anticipate when those rises and fallings are, are going to happen, you can buy in front of that. And if, if you don't do anything but just on rising weeks, on weeks to the when the market's going to be clearly improved rising, our market changes prices every Wednesday and Friday. Everybody uses random links as a measuring stick, and so that's not something we're going to buck a trend about. But you know the price is going to be printed Tuesday night and Thursday night. And your dealers, your trust manufacturers, component manufacturers are going to get those prices on either Tuesday night, Thursday night, and be ready on Wednesday and Friday to put them into practice. So if you, if you can anticipate what those prices are going to be and buy in front, just buy a couple of days in front of those price increases. Let's, let's say you're, you're needing to buy my five trucks of lumber from my component plant this week, and it was in a rising market. If I were to buy that lumber on Monday rather than Friday, I'd likely, I'd likely save $10 per thousand on every one of those trucks. So that's a thousand bucks a week you could save. And even if just being generous, let's just say you could only save five of them. So you're talking about five trucks of lumber and potentially save $25,000 over the course of a year, just in the timing of when you buy on a weekly basis without having to do any changing your strategy for your long-term planning, your cash flow, your inventory planning. It's just a matter of when you buy on a weekly basis. And to me, that's, that's, the, that's the most predictable and logical way to either save money or, or, um, or make money is the market volatility is just anticipating what it's going to do on a weekly basis. Conversely, in a falling market, if you see the market's going to be weak, rather than buying your lumber on Monday and Tuesday, wait and buy it Friday afternoon, and you, you're going to pick up five, ten bucks a thousand just by waiting and let, letting the market print itself and, and give you that money. And those are averages, so you're going you're to have weeks, certainly we're going to have weeks where prices will change five dollars a thousand, and they'll change nothing. Then there's going to be other times we've seen, like last year, the market would change fifty dollars a thousand in a week. 
And that happened multiple times in the spruce market, several times in, in all the other markets, green duck fur, hemp fur, OSB, and southern pine lumber as well. But it's not uncommon for the price of lumber to change $25 in a week when on weeks that it changes to get an average of uh, $10 or $15 when you've got weeks, that, some weeks it doesn't change at all, and other weeks it changes 25. But that's pretty significant. That's that's how I would do it because without having to make any radical change in your um, your cash flow availability or how you do your inventory management, you can you can pick off a lot of money out of the lumber market just buying early or later in a week. So let's uh, let's take a little bit of diversion to another topic. One of the things that happened today is Toyota is bringing a U.S. investment into the country of 13 billion over five years and adding 600 more jobs. And so when you take a look at Toyota, you take a look at Foxconn, or you take a look at all these folks that are bringing manufacturing jobs back in the United States, obviously that affects labor. And one of the things that when you think about this kind of influx of manufacturing jobs, and you take a look at the manufacturing jobs that we have in our industry, whether it be lumber manufacturing or truss manufacturing, wall panel manufacturing, or just the kind of the on-site uh, labor manufacturing of houses and obviously the building material supply distribution channel. And you take a look at Toyota or Foxconn, or you know, probably we could list another couple hundred Caterpillar, uh, Harley Davidson may be going to India, but they may be coming back, that kind of thing. How do you make this industry attractive? What's your point of view with respect to obviously a profession a profession where you can evolve and, and have a, a career and career advancement and know that you can have a big impact on the housing industry, but how do you make it attractive? Well, I'm going to say something from current experience, that there's a, there's a huge breakdown when you think of the process of what happens with the lumber that you make or the trusses that you make or the flooring that you make or the you know, light fixtures or whatever. In our industry, there's a huge delineation or breakdown or uh, chasm between the builder and the and the subcontractor and the most unreliable force in the entire package of, of um, you know building a component for a wall panel floor panel roof panel whatever it's going to be roof truss whatever it's going to be is ultimately you've got to let go of it and somebody's going to take it and put it on a house and the problem i think with our with our industry is at the bottom end of the, of the totem pole or the end of the food chain is a framing contractor or somebody who's going to handle the product and that part of the industry is so so fragile and you talk about lumber market is fragile it's, it's undependable there's just not enough competent labor and, and and without exception everybody that i talk to about trying to find truck drivers or laborers is passing a drug test it's not it's not the pool of people out there that you can't get them it's just the quality of the people that you're that you're attracting at the bottom end or the, the tail, I don't know what's called the bottom end, but the, the end of the end of the pipeline of, of handling the product, it's an unreliable pool of labor. And you know, from day to day, it's not trying to find people to stay with you for a year, it's trying to find people that'll come to work tomorrow that'll be sober. And that's not an oversimplification, Kirk. Everybody says that. That was when you have trying to find truck drivers with a CDL or trying to find somebody that can, you know, climb a roof and, and steady a truss and put it together or be on the job from seven o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the afternoon and work hard all day long and not lay out drunk or, or just 
you know, have to go back and uh, get your papers taken care of. That's a problem for our entire industry. And until you can address it at the bottom end, it's a bottleneck. I mean, there's only so much you can do. We can, if we had more builders, more framers, more, uh, more electricians, more um, um, plumbers, they were reliable people, then reliable workers, it'd be a whole different program. But we're stuck with that, in, not with that, we're stuck in that, um, I guess it's a paradigm of how, it, like how it's always been. And, you know, the reason I say a personal experience, I'm in the middle of it right now, and I'm in the middle of, I'm in my sixth month of a three-month remodel project. And it's just getting the guys to keep showing up. The guys that say they're going to be there tomorrow, they, they just don't come. They just go do something else. I got a painter supposed to be here yesterday, promised me to be here today at noon almost three o'clock and no, no show, nothing, you know, it's just, it's frustrating. So regardless of what we can do, we can make lumber more efficiently. We can make panels more efficiently. We can, we can put the products out there and be competitive from a manufacturing state of mind or, or position. But if you can't get them installed and put on the job and into the house, you know, in a professional, efficient and quality like manner, it's all fruitless. If we get immigration fixed and we have merit-based immigration and these folks want to come here, they're vetted and they want to work and they, you know, on a path to citizenship and we really grow that market. What's your thoughts about that? Well, if you think about the jobs, it's not necessarily having the skill to do it, but it's Americans have this um, attitude of entitlement, like we're owed something. I'm going to dig deep here because we stole the land from the Indians. We feel like we should have some sort of entitlement to be able to keep it and have something special that other people don't have. But if you're not willing to get on the ground and crawl in the dirt and get dirty and come to work and be happy, forget what the money is. Even if it's $25 an hour, people won't do certain jobs. The Hispanic guys that are here, men and women that are here doing jobs, living in households with you know four or five family members, they're happy to be here because they're, they're, they're in a better place right. than they were. And one of the things that we have attractive about America is even if you get a crappy job here, it's a living environment that's better than where you come from in most places. So you can't really discourage those people from coming when they, if they'll, they'll take a job cleaning a house or bust a table and, and put four or five incomes in a, in a household and be very happy doing that. But we won't do it. Americans want to have two incomes, free childcare, free healthcare, and retirement benefits and weekends off and, and, and get to go home at 5.30 every day. I'm in total agreement. The folks that come in from outside of our country into this country, everybody says they're great workers, they're great people, they want to contribute, and they do great things. And we need a lot more of that. I think everybody realizes we need a lot more of it. I think that the debate really is, can we fix it so that there's a path to citizenship and a path to a legal pathway to doing that? So, there, so that if that if that policy, I mean, obviously that's piece number one. Can we ever get that policy fixed? Who knows? But piece number two, if we do, what is the impact that you would see on all the businesses in the construction supply chain and also the growth of housing? whether it be multifamily, single family, the whole shoot match? Well, I think first of all, we gotta, you got two things that have to happen. One is the people that don't want to do these jobs have to realize that those, there's a, those are a lot of the jobs that, that are out there that people are coming for. And whether they're skilled and getting here illegal or legal, not gonna change the attitude of the people here that don't want to do it. You know, right. who, who wants to stand out in 20 degree rainy weather banging nails in mud. 
that's that's not a big job. And who wants to who wants to teach your child to grow up and be a truck driver? And our whole world needs those jobs to you know to continue on. Either either they got to be replaced by AI or or somebody's got to buck up and you know get paid. Because I don't think it's, I was, again, I don't think it's a money thing. I think it's kind of a status thing for Americans. Like, what do you do for a living? Well, if you're not clean when you go to work and clean when you come home, then you're you're kind of locked into a different crowd of people that you hang out with people that dress like you do, work like you do, and we stereotype ourselves and thinking that it's kind of a class war kind of thing, and, and we're more segregated by economy than we are by race, and it's it's kind of a pitiful state of affairs for how we've evolved. But one solution, one thing that I think has got to happen is we got to we got to redefine what housing is. The housing's not no longer a, a three-bedroom, two-bath ranch on a half acre in the suburbs with sidewalks and a school bus and you know and grocery stores down the street. We, we've got too many people that can't afford to, to buy a, a single-family dwelling in that kind of description. So we've got to redefine what that housing is going to be. How can if people want to buy a hundred fifty thousand dollar home, that's all can afford. What can we offer for that? Is it going to be a, is it going to be condos? Is it going to be a smaller? You got to give up things in the 21st century. You can't get the same bang for your bucks you could in 1940. You don't get a, you don't get an acre. You get no acres. You get community property or community uh, living areas and community uh, landscaped areas and community play areas. And we got to we got to learn to share the, our living environment. And that's that's one thing that can happen. If we've already seen the illegal immigrants and the legal immigrants that are coming to this country, very few of them probably live in uh, the American dream kind of family life, but they're willing to do what they can do to, to be here. And and we're not, again, we're entitled to thinking that we, because we've been here, we're born here, we're Native Americans, we're born Americans, and we should get something that somebody else doesn't have, or we should be better off and get get a better deal or a better piece of the American dream than, than others do. And it's, it's um, it's you know it's kind of a greed thing. I, I mean I, I'm not down on America by any stretch of the imagination, but you know you can take any day any day of the week that somebody says something negative about the economy. Just get in your car and drive out to the interstate and look, and drive around town and look. People aren't staying home. People are out spending money out the, out the yang. They're charging it, spending everything they've got, whatever they can do to keep keep doing what they want to do, which is enjoying their life, and that's spending their money or spending the government's money, however they're getting it. But people aren't aren't homebound because they can't get out and can't afford to go do anything. So, so, so I think probably to recap that, you know, at least from my perspective, there's, you know, there, there's a lot of change right now in our environment <clears throat> and that change, one piece of change is labor. Uh, that's going to be a big impact over the next uh, few years. And obviously immigration is a big part of that, how that's solved we're going to need to watch very carefully because I think all of that has an impact on both can we get housing built, but that also has an impact on uh, there's going to be a need for more housing. If that is successful, we get to, to a position where we've got success with immigration and everybody can embrace it. And everybody can say, yeah, we need more and more folks here. And this is the, the bastion of uh a place to grow, a place to um, become a professional, a place to increase your value to society. So that's piece one. Piece two then becomes, what is that housing stock? And how do we deal with that housing stock? Because is it single family, like we've traditionally had, or is it townhouse, dense, more urban? 
uh, and that's going to change the, the building environment too. So my sense is you see a little bit of a change in that housing stock going to, rather than a traditional single family, kind of a suburban type environment, to more of infill, obviously being close to work. Uh, you don't want to commute five hours each day, uh, two hours in, two hours out uh, to work every day. Uh, there's probably more remote offices kinds of things, or maybe even home offices. So what do you think about that? And that's probably what we'll end on for this yeah. particular discussion. Two things. One is there is a limit to how many people can stay in a spot. I mean, you, just, you can't keep packing these metros getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The infrastructure can't handle it. I mean, for every person that gets born or comes here, that taxes the infrastructure and the, you know, the, the safety issues, the public service issues. It's an expansion of more than just a home for that family. So it's, I mean, there's a, there comes a point when if we have massive immigration reform, that's a, there's a lot more to it than just making sure they got a legal job to get to. It's, it's servicing that family and that individual from a healthcare perspective, from a safety perspective, from water, emergency services, telephones, cable vision, cell phones, I mean, restaurants, everything, schools. It's a big deal. And if we just open the gates and say, all right, anybody that wants to come, we got a gate, we've got a pathway to easy citizenship. Anybody can come and get it. We're going to get overrun. We just, we can't do that. If we're the most desirable place in the country, in the world to be, everybody's going to want to come and give it a shot. All they got to do is get plane fare or boat fare to get here and they can get in and find a job. And at some point we're going to get overloaded with, with able workers that are qualified workers that are legal. At some point that's going to end. So we've got to be, you've got to, you've got to have limits to what you're going to allow to go. Look ahead for, not just for housing, but the infrastructure of, you know, how does the whole society work? How does it survive? And you know, I can see looking further out, you can we could easily get crumbled and crushed under the, under our own weight of success. Um, it's true. That's true. And and all of that I think has to be considered as we're moving forward, public policy wise. But we also have to consider that it seems to me from a business perspective, because there's no doubt that with manufacturing jobs coming back, there's a there's going to be a need for uh, a good supply of workers. Flip side of it is, you know, in, in the next question, we'll maybe talk about this next time, is the whole industrialization, automation, artificial intelligence, those kinds of things that could be, be brought into play, but that's got a heavy capital cost and can you get a return on investment with all of that? So, yeah, so, to start before you do anything else, these people have a place to live. Right. You, gotta, you gotta have a place to lay down at night, stay dry and warm and eat. and Certainly, they're not. We don't have a world full of homeless people because they, they want to work in the right place to live. But but we're getting stressed out. I mean, these older homes that are 50, 75 years old, you know, you, it takes a lot to refurbish one of those things. You spend a hundred thousand dollars fixing up a you know, hundred thousand dollar house. People would rather go buy a new house for one hundred fifty that's that doesn't have any problems and give up give up some yard or give us some convenience. But but these you know we're talking. You, you mentioned like like what kind of jobs are we going to have in the future? Like manufacturing jobs and and, and, and I, I think instead of having the people come to the jobs, the jobs are going to have to go to the people, which is going to mean they're going to get more rural and get out of the metropolises and get out of the conveniences. Because if you look anywhere around the around, around the country today, and it's like you find a you find an old piece of farmland, and they don't just build houses on it. They put a they put a CVS and a Harris Teeter or a grocery store and a, and a drug store and a hair salon and a pizza place. Communities are getting built, not just subdivisions, but they're building little mini cities everywhere to make it self-sustaining. And all they need to do is, is find out how they can work in that environment closer to home. And we can, we can really, there's a lot of room to expand.
No, I think that's really true. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think infrastructure is a big issue. Labor's an issue, infrastructure's an issue, and we, there's a lot of rural environment that we could end up uh, making very palatable to having a community again. It's probably a smaller community, but that's, there's a lot to be said for smaller communities where you care about each other in that community. I'm guessing so, you're in a town called Ellenboro, North Carolina? No. Population's about 1,500. It's where Facebook's headquarters is for all of their servers. Really? One of the two places in the world is in Ellenboro, North Carolina, which is near Rutherfordton, North Carolina, which is about halfway between Asheville and Charlotte, North Carolina. It's, on the, it's not even on an interstate. It's on a Highway 74. And it's just this massive concrete structure that was put up about five years ago. Now they've built another one. And it's just, just for housing um, servers. It, only, it probably employs less than 100 people, but it's multiple billion dollar um, operations. But that's an idea of like, they find a remote place and stick it out there and it creates a job for someplace, someplace like Facebook that's got the money to spend and they, they put it in a community that, that desperately needs it and that community flourishes. And, you know, those big companies like Amazon, you know, they, you go to New York City or downtown Charlotte, but why not put it someplace where you can employ a thousand people that need jobs rather than where you can employ a thousand people to make get better jobs? Totally agree. That's a brilliant, brilliant concept. Thank you very much for the conversation. The conversation was great. Uh, flowing, and we'll move this forward. We'll do this again and see what other interesting issues we can talk about. Great. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to SBCA's podcast, Component Connection. We are committed to bringing you a variety of information via this podcast. Please email your feedback or suggestions for future topics to podcast at sbcindustry.com. 